July 24, 2011, lecture discussion number 41 on Romans uh, 3, 19 through 25. Now, before we get started with that, I, I got a couple of things to read. I wasn't really going to do it, but then I got an email from somebody who said that they like it uh, when we do this. And so, actually, I talked to her on the phone, uh, and she uh, she said this. You mentioned editing out some parts of your sermon because they're local in nature. She calls me when I talked to her yesterday. She said it's, it's like talking to an MP3. Um, an MP3 can be any length, so unless you're trying to time the recordings to fit on a single CD as a CD audio file, my opinion is that you should leave the local flavor in the talks. It makes those of us who know you and the congregation only through audio files feel more a part of your group. You can really feel like you know people from just hearing various details like that. So, Sharon, uh, uh, we're going we're gonna to go ahead and, and start doing that. And that's why I, um, I read this. Uh, Sharon is from Texas. And uh, um, she said, uh, I'll read this part too. It was a total joy to get your phone call today, Pastor Stephen. So, I'm kind of liking Pastor Stephen. It's formal sounding. It's every bit as good as Mr. I have been trying to find your website, and I informed Sharon that everyone is trying to find our website, as we don't we don't have much of a website uh, presence uh, other than Sermon Audio and iTunes and Podbean. I'm delighted you have at least the start of one. So she found what we had, and she uh, uh, gratefully or kindly called it a start. I'm going to check on uh, CliffsideCommunity.com weekly. That's bad news for us. Because uh, we there may not be much changing uh, yearly, Sharon might be a better plan to see if the collection of sermon teachings. She asked me how many I had, and I told her I'm 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 in the thousands now, and that delighted her. So she expected all thousands of them to be on the website sometime, maybe Tuesday, and uh, I I don't think that's going to happen. I tried to emphasize. Uh, Small, uh, uh, small, uh, uh, resourceless group. Anyway, I keep going. I am definitely excited about that prospect until you are able to start hosting the audio and hopefully video and PDF notes at some point. She has big plans for us, and, and uh, that's really cool. From this site, you might want to put a link to your sermonaudio.com and podbean.com uh, iTunes sermon pages and the iTunes URL. Sorry, I messed that up for people to add it to their podcast downloads. It was confusing to me why the latest sermon I could find was from June 5th. Um, that's not confusing at all. <laughs> that's the fastest we can do. I understand why after I understand why after having spoken with you. So, uh, thanks so much for calling me today and uh, and she wishes to volunteer and be of any use that we can have and uh, is very uh, uh, very kind and uh, in her comments about us. And so, Sharon, uh, thank you for participating. Sharon from Texas. That's how you're forever known here. Um, I also, Jennifer from Arizona, you remember her. Uh, she left a comment that uh, responded to the surrounded theme. She noticed that there's a surrounded theme in Scripture. If you remember, I went through that a little bit. Genesis 19 uh, Judges 19, Psalm 22, 12, and Psalm 22, 16. There's this surrounded theme uh, in Scripture. And Israel is the one who is primarily surrounded. Now, some people note that Israel is a picture of Christ, and that's absolutely true. Israel goes into the wilderness. Israel is the firstborn. Um, uh, Israel has all kinds of relationship typologically to Christ. But you have to pay attention. When you get into Psalm 22, uh, Jennifer was wondering what the uh, bulls of Bashan, what that, what that reference was that Christ on the cross or is that uh, the campaign of Armageddon with respect to the surrounding of Israel by the army of the Antichrist. And all of that could be. It's really difficult because of the Hebrew pr uh, principle of uh, recurrence. You don't know for sure when you read Psalm 22 without, without spending time word by word. Some, as you know, in, in the Hebrew, we have this principle of recurrence where I'll have two verses literally side by side, one on top of the other, or I'll have half of this verse and half of that verse that will, re that will uh, refer to something or someone that is 
uh, many thousands of years apart. Are you going to move the... Uh, thank you. I'll have to flip it around anyway, so just pull it like that, and then I'll do the magic uh, thingy. What I mean by that is that it's really it's really obvious in Isaiah, talking about Isaiah's son and talking about Christ, literally verse for verse, one talks about Christ, one talks about Isaiah's son, and it's important uh, the entire audience is mesmerized by, by Mike and Dave Skill at flipping over the platinum model uh, dry erase board, most holy that it is. Yes, yes. Applause, standing ovation, certainly appropriate. Okay, I'll go back. It's funny to start saying things and nobody's looking at you in the audience. They're all looking at the marvelous device that we have. My point is, is in Psalm 22, just let me open that really fast for Jennifer's sake. And yes, Jennifer, this is, uh, we're responding. And she is correct, by the way, about these themes that are in Scripture. You have the three days, three night theme. You have the surrounded theme. You have um, the lion theme. You have all these different themes. The worm theme, that's uh, the crimson worm of Jonah. Very important theme in Scripture. Uh, you can't be, you can be sure of one thing. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is something that Christ said, but that applies to Israel, not to Him. I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. Uh, that is likely Christ. Let Him deliver Him. The deliver theme that is in Scripture applies mostly to Christ. Um, uh, but then you have these others. Many bulls have surrounded me. That could be uh, Christ or it could be Israel. I think the evidence is that that is Israel. Um, the same thing with dogs have surrounded me. Very likely Israel. They have pierced my hands and my feet. Christ. And so when you go through these Old Testament Scriptures, know that there is recurrence here. Not double fulfillment. Uh, but the principle that some scriptures, uh, I'm sorry, did I, I'm saying recurrence and I'm probably meaning reference. Double reference and not double uh, fulfillment. What it means is that some of it refers to Christ, some of it refers to Israel, some of it refers to Isaiah's son, some of it refers to Christ, and it is separated by vast amounts of time. So those are the two principles when you read scripture, recurrence, which is an explanation of something previously said and double reference. So, is, is Jennifer correct when she says that she's noticed this surround theme is in Psalm 22? Absolutely. Just as it is, as I said, surrounding Sodom and surrounding the house in Judges 19. Surrounding in the house in Sodom and Judges 19, which is very similar. Now, that's out of the way. Did that quickly and not so well. But at least it's there and uh, somebody can figure out what I really meant as they go through it. Now I have a letter from Steve in Seattle. And this is what he said. Greetings from the internets. I come with gifts. There is money, but I have included a gift card for something that is more valuable than money. Donuts. You sent out the call a few weeks ago, so I'm answering you. Please enjoy these donuts, and this time, don't share. <laughs> First of all, I would like to thank you for ruining my blissfully ignorant view of Christian doctrine. You planted the seeds back when I lived up there in Anchorage with my mom and dad, Janet and Daniel Powell. I was 17 and dumb. You always said teenagers are at the peak of their idiocy, and at the time, I was offended by your comments. I now know that you are right. Yeah. I now know that you are right, not just from my teenage experience, but the fact that you were also were a teenager at some point in your lifetime. You were speaking from experience. And for you to say this with such conviction could only lead me to conclude that you have some pretty awesome dumb teenager stories of your own. Please feel free to sprinkle them into your future sermons. As I said before, you planted the seeds of wisdom many years ago. It has taken a while for those seeds to grow in me, but I believe these seeds are starting to take root. I am now able to identify doctrinal statements in sermons, and if I disagree with the statement, 
I can point to a passage or two that would clear up the issue. The most challenging thing for me right now is being able to identify all the components in an Old Testament passage. Christ, the church, Israel, Satan, the tribulation, the seven kingdoms, us, etc. I figure if I find one truth, the time spent in the mud will be worth it. It has taken my wife and I a while to find a church in Seattle that has not compromised doctrinally. You may not know this, but Seattle is a city where church attendance is low, and the churches are always giving a seeker-sensitive sermon to draw in more money. I mean people. He has listened to me, hasn't he? He has. Because of this, the sermons are soft and pastors compromise Christian values to any pressure from seekers who would like to keep their scientific view of evolution or movie-slash-book representation of Christ. What I'm trying to say is if you ever think about moving out of Anchorage, don't come here unless you want to have a smaller church with higher rent. My family would, of course, be in the front row and laugh at all of your jokes. That's right. That's critical importance. Since you last saw me, I have graduated from college, went back to college, got married, and now have a 21-month-old son. I share your scientific passion in some ways with that little free time I have. I read scientific books about cosmology and stellar evolution. I am not going to expect a church leader to be up to date on the latest scientific discoveries, but it would be nice to find one that is at least interested in fighting evolutionary atheism with biblical literacy. The church we go to now has taken up this fight and will not compromise biblical truth. This view is more rare than it should be. About a year ago, we went to a popular church around here. That should have been my first clue. And the sermon text was from the Genesis creation account. I have to give some credit to the pastor for discussing nephesh. He misspelled it, Steve. I want to point that out if you want, just, just as a help. But I knew what it was. I knew it wasn't Nephish. I knew it was Nephish, in reference to Nephish Kaya. But he then said the theistic evolutionary time, school, time scale has strong merit. I, of course, needed to know what he meant by this, so after the sermon, I had to talk to him. I came to find out that he teaches a Genesis class that discusses, discusses the theistic evolutionary timeline in detail and how it fits into the biblical model. I only had to get off a few questions about death in his pre-Adam system before he excused himself. The point of the story is to say that my blissfully ignorant view of the Bible and science is destroyed, and I have you to thank for it. The world of biblical scholarship and true scientific investigation has opened up to me. These two fields are so overwhelming in themselves that a lifetime of investigation would only knock down a few trees in the forest of knowledge. A sad fact of reality is that this makes my march for knowledge lonely. You hinted at this in your sermons that very few people in the church actually care to study the deep mysteries of the Bible. I have found this to be absolutely true in the churches I have attended. Every Ishtar, he's just going to get a fight, isn't he? Every Ishtar, I bring up Jonah and get blank stares. Thank you again for making it easier to alienate myself from my friends. (laughs) I say this jokingly, but I would not be on the right track if I had more friends and only seeker-sensitive topics to discuss. Please accept this offering up for your church. Down here in the lower 48, we have to pay our state government, not the other way around. Since I don't get a dividend check, I had to steal money out of the local water fountains for months. In the winter, the water gets very cold, but at least it doesn't freeze. I'm sure you can buy a few Diet Cokes with it. Earlier this year, you mentioned how many people have downloaded some of your more unpopular sermon topics. The one I'm thinking about was a topic on circumcision. You see why I'm reading this letter. I'm I'm wishing you could all be like this guy. I'm kidding about that. Actually, you said that this sermon was downloaded by 40 or so people. Actually, I downloaded it 40 times myself. (laughs) With what little pull I have in your church, I will beg you to keep uploading those sermon audio regularly. I downloaded your sermons to my iPod and listened to them on the bus to and from work. Thank you again for reinforcing my belief that science and scripture are complementary. I now have the responsibility to teach my son. 
and I will not take this responsibility lightly. Stephen M. Powell. Thank you, Stephen. It's great to hear from you. I understand your mother and father are coming up, and uh, and hopefully they'll be able to come up on a Sunday, and they can take credit for you, or uh, or or the consequences for you, whichever the case may be. I read that because I wanted you to know he's absolutely right. Science and the Bible are complementary. They are hand in glove, and they are critical. Uh, for us, because they are man's uh, way of finding the fingerprints of God, if you will, or searching to see what God said and did after he has done them. Finding his footprints might be a better way of putting it. That is the goal of science when it is done correctly, and that is why I read that. Okay, here we go. Again, July 24, 2011, lecture discussion number 41 on Romans 3, 19 through 25. Actually, truthfully, we've yet to get past Romans 3.19. Some of you might have noticed that already. Uh, Let me read it again to you. Now we know that whatever the law says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Let me repeat that. Whatever the law says. So whatever the law says. Let me repeat that again. Whatever the law says. Make sure you remember that. Hopefully by now when Romans 3.19 is read, everyone then immediately wants to connect it, I hope you do, back to Romans 1.20. And that says this. Let me read that. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes. So, what did I say? Law says something. The law. And now I have invisible attributes. And I'll have to erase all of this. In a minute, when we get to the quantum mechanics portion of this lecture. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. You should immediately ask, what are his invisible attributes? How are they clearly seen? Being understood by the things. uh, Things. Law, invisible things that are made his eternal power and godhood head sorry so that they are without excuse every mouth stopped without excuse the law says to the things that are made you have no excuse shut up you are all without excuse you are all guilty let me repeat again that's what the law is saying and it is saying it to the things that are made and next let's go off um we should go to ecclesiastes 3:11 he has made everything proper in its time everything proper in its time Also, he has put eternity in their hearts. What's the obvious? What do you notice immediately? He has juxtaposed time and eternity. Let me read it again. Ecclesiastes 3.11. He has made everything proper in its time. Also, he has put eternity in their hearts, except no one can find out the work of God. No one can find out. No finding out. He has made everything proper in its time. Also, He has put eternity in their hearts, except no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. Now, those three passages launch us into a bunch of complex questions, as you know. First question that you should ask, is when did time begin? We asked that last week. Do you remember when time begins? That's answered by Isaiah 57.15. I'll read that. The high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. Time begins when God made it. Now, the evolutionary atheistic position says that there was an infinitely dense, which means that it is infinite. When as soon as science starts to say things like infinite, then you know they're ascribing a characteristic that only belongs to God to something. They said there was an infinitely dense particle, very tiny. That's That would represent it. Can you see the particle? 
Well, good, because you can't see it. It's infinitely dense and very small. And that infinitely dense, very small particle explodes. And what's inside of it? Scientifically, atheistically, what's inside of that infinitely dense, very small particle? All the matter that is here today, but also time is in there. And energy, so the created order is in there. Time, energy, matter, and space. Now, what existed before that thing exploded? Actually, it didn't explode, did it? It was spoken into existence. It comes from the mind of God. It did not come from an infinitely dense little tiny particle. But that's a debate for as we're going through this. Now, the created order, as I said, space, matter, time, and energy. What was before the created order? Do you remember from last week? That's correct. Void zero. Before time, who said that? Yay. Let's give smarter one. Misty. See, Sharon wants to know your name. Misty gets the name. Yes. Um, void zero as, as contrasted to what? Well, be aggressive. Void one. That's correct. Do we give Dave a, a an A? Well, we could. <laughs> void zero, I have to change pens. Void zero is the pre-existent nothing that is before time. Who inhabits that? We're going to call it not just void zero. I'm going to call it Isaiah 57:15. What am I going to call it? Eternity. The pre-existent Space, if you will, that is inhabited by God, eternity, uh, is void zero. And void one, uh, void zero had no physical properties in it at all, John 4.24. Void one, on the other hand, as I said, after he speaks it into existence, after it comes out of the mind, the Spirit of God has time, energy, matter, and space. So that's one question. Now the next question That's when did time begin. Another question, when will time stop or will time stop? Will time end? The arrow of time, when time has a direction, doesn't it? I have an arrow that tells us what direction time is going. That question leads us to where? If I want to know if time is going to stop and I want to know when the direct, or what the direction of time is, what, where am I headed now? I'm in a discussion of thermodynamics, aren't I? I'm in a discussion of entropy, because we are able to tell time by entropy. Entropy means what? Entropy means order becoming disorder. As a, as a, the best example I can give you of something that it was highly ordered and now is becoming highly disordered is me. I'll show you pictures. I was once very highly ordered, and now... I am misshapen and uh, big-boned and, and things. I drool now. That was one of my great worries is my dad drooled. And, and if you got too close to him, that's one that if, if you do laugh at my jokes, you have to sit in the front row, as Steve Powell alluded to. But the disadvantage is, is you need some kind of visqueen because... Some people say, well, why do you drink medicine slash Diet Coke every sermon? Uh, To provide some kind of hydraulic pressure so that I can reach the second row when I get really excited. (laughs) Okay. We measure time with entropy, order becoming disorder. High order is low entropy. Does that make sense to you? High order is low entropy. High entropy is low order, or high randomness, if you will. And the obvious question immediately flies out and smacks you with that. From where did we get something? Where did we get this high ordered state that we see now becoming uh, headed towards disorder? From where did the high ordered state originate? That's not a very good question. The better question is from whom? And then the next question is, is why did a high-ordered state. Why did God create, you see? Why did God create? I'll give you a really quick answer. He must create. So the next question becomes, why must He create? Who's grateful He created? 
A, we exist because he speaks us into existence. But why must he create? Very important question. And then, why this law of thermodynamics relationship to time? How is this to be explained? And this is usually the point where somebody runs from the building screaming, who cares? And what about me? And how does this apply to me? And again, that's why I read Mr. Powell. And notice I called him Mr. Powell, even though I am in a much uh, higher entropy state than him. And therefore, generally those of us in high entropy states are given respect. But Steve uh, Powell asked, he said that he's going to all these churches that are focusing on on uh, seeker-sensitive or contemporary subjects, because those subjects will say this. The question that they will always ask or want you to ask is, how does this affect me? How does this apply to me? Enough about God. I want to talk about me. And they know that. They know that's what's coming into the doors now. And they know that the way to get these, these large crowds and the way to therefore get what? monetize the crowd. The way I can monetize that crowd is to bring in more numbers. And if I can make them ask the question, what about me? How does it affect me? I want to talk about me. Then that works. And uh, truthfully, no one has ever run from the building screaming, who cares? What about me? I did, though. Uh, True story. I did have somebody once hold up a sign where he had scribbled the words in the middle of one of my lectures. lectures, He held up the sign in the back, who cares? Actually happened. Every now and then I see him. So I'm very well aware that the overwhelming majority of congregants, I'm going to estimate 99%, come to church to receive. They want to be catchers. To focus upon themselves. Revelation 3.16, the modern, modern contemporary Laodicean church age is now. And that church, that Laodicean church, it's very good at fleecing and slaughtering these people with minimal effort. It's fish in a barrel. And they come in there and they get clobbered. But I, uh, I, I'm ranting now, aren't I? Not very loud, but I'm, I am ranting. It falls under the ranting Parameter. Just remember, as best we all can remember, it is not about us. It is not about me. It is not about you. It never has been about us, me, or you, or them. Romans one twenty one. although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as... Let me substitute. They did not glorify Christ as God. You can put Christ in that verse very easily. Although they knew God, put it this way, although they knew Christ, they did not glorify Christ as God. Very easily take 121 and make it that. Although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were they thankful, but they became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts became darkened. So look at what you must do. You must glorify. You must be thankful. You must know that Jesus Christ is God. You have to understand the things that are made, the things that are made. You've got to know that you're a thing. We're things. We're also spirit. And you have to see the invisible made visible. That is also a appellation or a name of Jesus Christ. He is the invisible made visible. But there also is the invisible made visible as well. Otherwise, what will you have? You will have futile thoughts and dark foolish hearts. So, pretty clear choice. And now off we go. with help from Professor Edgar Andrews and his tome, Who Made God? And we're going to go into the mysteries that are the universalism of law, quantum mechanics, symmetry of time, symmetry of law, or what's also called translational symmetry, and the theological, philosophical, spiritual implications that accompany all of that. Is it easy? It ain't easy. How many of you have read the homework assignment, chapter 2? I've asked a few of you. How many of you read it? How many of you understood any of it? How many have kept reading it? It is very difficult. And look, 
uh, I know that. It's okay. You'll make it. You'll be amazed when you're done. There are spiritual implications that accompany all of this that we're going to do, quantum mechanics primarily today, more or less a history of quantum mechanics as it's developed today and the implications of what these men, almost all men, what they figured out as they went through this process. They figured something out. They figured out that God existed. All of them. That's pretty exciting when you think about it. I defy you to find an atheistic physicist. They know. And hopefully you remember where we left off last week. We left off with turtles and puzzles. Or what I call, or what's also called the fallacy of infinite regression. That's the turtles. And the puzzles, uh, the mysteries of science that was explained and are being explained by Max Planck's quantum theory. And so this is today mostly a discussion of Max Planck, his constant, because his constant has tremendous ramifications. And he knew it not just in physics, in theology, in philosophy. So you need to know, Max. Now the interesting thing for you is that uh, most of you, I look, look around, most of you were alive when these men were alive. Some of you were alive when all of them were alive. I would sit around as a young man and my dad would talk about uh, Albert Einstein. And he didn't know Max Planck, but everyone knew Einstein and what the implications of Einstein's theories were to us. Max Planck... Is, uh, is credited with quantum theory. And you may have noticed that I'm slightly lagging behind the assigned reading, and that will remain the case. You, you all can read faster than I can explain this. But as many of you have expressed, um, reading Professor Andrews' discourse is not for the faint-hearted. It requires reading and then rereading, then a rereading of the rereading. And I want to, I don't know how to force you to do it other than to just exhort and implore and tell you, just keep doing it, just keep going after it. If you don't understand it, it's okay. Read it again. Pretty soon you're going to understand it. And when you do, you have this incredible treasure. You have one of the footprints of God. And hopefully you'll remember from last Sunday, actually July the 10th, because for those who follow on the Internet, we had a business meeting on July the 17th, and so uh, there was no lecture that day. So from July the 10th, I raised some mysteries that classical physics could not and didn't explain. And the first mystery, uh, you may remember, why hot objects uh, didn't radiate. Let me put this back over. They, they did such a great job, I didn't want to stop them. And everybody was applauding ferociously at them, but uh, but actually I have to go back here. You may remember that Max Planck decided that he had to take on, oh, I don't have it on here, do I? Okay, well, I can flip it right back. Max Planck looked at what was called thermal radiation. Classical physics could not solve it. And it was the first mystery that I brought up uh, last week. Why hot objects didn't radiate an infinite amount of energy or the mystery of thermal radiation or black body radiation and ultraviolet catastrophe. In other words, why when I heat an object didn't it continue to radiate into infinity and reach a what's called a catastrophic uh, radiation emission level? Why was it harder, Max Planck figured out, for it? Because it didn't work. And classical physics said it should do that, but it wasn't doing that. And so why was it harder for an object exposed to heat to admit an ultraviolet photon? And he had to solve it because classical physics did not solve it. And this was the year 1900, and he knew something was wrong with classical physics. He knew there was something going on at the microscopic level that no one understood. And there, and there his quantum theory came in the year 1900. And when he figured it out, he knew he had figured out something astonishing. 
And if all you get from me is that these men went through one astonishing, the kind of, kind of understanding that made them stop and fall. They were overwhelmed by it. If you read Rutherford, he, he's shooting radiation at, at gold uh, plates trying to see what will happen when it all scatters and what it doesn't. He, he sat down and said, I have discovered something extraordinary. Stunned by it. We'll get into Rutherford here eventually. But the word, world of physics began to change when Max Planck solved thermal radiation. And it began to be taken aback, if you will. The invisible was becoming visible. And if you remember mystery number two, the photoelectric effect, that was solved by Albert Einstein. Albert Einstein recognized in 1905 that the photoelectric effect was not being explained by classical physics. Something was wrong. And if it was wrong, then there was so much more information. Some, some amazing thing was out there. They didn't know for sure. But he took Max Planck's theory on, on thermal radiation and he applied it to the photoelectric effect. And he solved the mystery of the photoelectric effect. And the world of physics was stunned. And the theological implications of what they were doing, and you might not understand it yet, but you will. The theological implications of quantum theory being true was exploding in this small community of very, very brilliant men and women. And they knew that the world was going to change. The God, the God hypothesis was being proven little by little. That is what this book is, as you know from Professor Edgar Andrews. It is the God hypothesis. And it was being proven by quantum physicists little by little by the destruction of all other explanations. Two things now that you must put into your basket of knowledge. You have to get uh, phenomenology. Phenomenology. Can you do that? The study of phenomenon. Phenomenology. Let's try to say it really fast in the shower. This is the way things, the way things phenomenology, the way things are seen and observed, are manifested. That's what it is. It is the study of things. Why do I keep saying things? That's how we started the lecture. Things that are made and discrete. And this is really difficult. You're going to think something as soon as I put it on the board. Discrete means distinct. Um, discontinuous would be the best uh, word, uh, the best, uh, uh, I'm sorry, a uh, definition that I can give you of discrete, discontinuous, individualized, think pulses, if you will. Do not confuse discrete with discrete. Does that make sense, anybody? Do not confuse discrete, which is distinct, dis, uh, discontinuous. Do not confuse it with discrete. That's going to, somebody listening to me is going to go, what is he talking about now? Discrete, D-I-S-C-R-E-T-E, discontinuous, individualized, the pulses, if you will. Do not confuse it with discrete, D-I-S-C-R-E-E-T, which is to me not showy or cautious. Quantum mechanics, quantum theory is based on the discovery that energy can only be transferred in discrete packets, distinct individualized, discontinuous, pulsing packets. That is how energy is transferred from one thing to another. Okay? And they call that discrete, pulsing, discontinuous packet, they call that quanta. If something has been quantized, it means that energy was transferred from it in a pulse. Poof! 
The little pulse came out. It isn't a continuous transfer of energy. It's a pulse of energy. Understanding that changed physics, changed what, what the scientific community thought and has begun to prove the God hypothesis. Mystery number three, if you remember, is heat capacity. Won't get into that today. But mystery number four, I hope you remembered this, is why don't atoms implode? Atoms are stable. They should self-destruct. They should collapse onto themselves. Neg- I, got, I got an atom, right? I, and Listen, I'm going to draw it correctly so that you, you begin to see it correctly. If this is the nucleus of the atom. Oops, I made it too big. Okay. That's the nucleus of the atom. And here's my little gaseous cloud electron going around. It's not that big. But there are rings. Think of them as rungs in a ladder, if you will. That's more appropriate now. Don't think of the solar system model of a subatomic diameter that you all got in the eighth grade. That was Rutherford. This is Bohr. Niels Bohr, the Bohr model. I'll get into that in a second. But when that, when that electron jumps, from here to there, from an outer ring to an inner ring, around the nucleus of the atom, it emits a photon. Poof, off it goes. Okay? Now, what color is the photon of light? The obvious question is, what color is it? It has a spectral capability. I am very excited. I'm looking at you. And... and. Most of you are still with me. I'm going to tell you, I think all of you, even Misty's mom is going, okay, she didn't warn me. Did you? Did she? Okay, good, good. Nice job. How, she, how, how good of a warning did she give you, Misty's mom? This is for Sharon's benefit. I see another, another, you, 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 did you tell her? Did she? It might be over your head. It's not, is it? Oh, there you go. Very good. Somebody was smart in this family because she's smart. Yeah. And and I see Kathy and Ian, you're back, and we're not having some goofy meeting this time. How's that, huh? It's good to see you back. I'm watching. I'm really. I hate to. I hate to do this to Kathy. And I see a friend next to Cindy. I hate to. I hate to point you out. And 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 Carina is here. I hate to point you out, but I can't help but notice you. This, you know, this is this is physics as it applies theologically. Because physics applies theologically. And you're, and I'm just thrilled to see you trying to, to stay with me. And it isn't easy. I'm only on page seven. I only got, oh, a couple of hours to go here. No, that's not true. It's not true. Why don't atoms implode? Because they should. Why should they? Because what is this electron supposedly, and I say supposedly, I'll give it to you. It's a negatively charged particle. What is in the center of the, uh, of the atom? And this, by the way, this whole thing is the atom. This is the nucleus of the atom. So when I talk about uh, atomic diameter, I'm talking about the diameter of the outermost ring, outermost ring that includes that uh, nucleus in there. What's in the nucleus? You all went to eighth grade. Some of you got through it. Yes, I have a proton in there. That's right. And what is it? It it is a positive charge. As that atom, I'm sorry, as that electron goes around, it is, uh, anytime I have an electrical charged particle and I'm moving it, what am I doing? I'm creating electromagnetic energy. As I'm creating electromagnetic energy, that energy is dissipating. Why doesn't that electron go right to that proton? It should happen in a millisecond, but it does not. Atoms are stable. There is no classical physics explanation for that. The only explanation is quantum mechanics. Atoms are stable. Neil Bohr. Niels Bohr. And this is the exciting part. I want to get this as close as I can. 1885-1962. Niels Bohr used Planck's and Einstein's quantum mechanics. He used Planck's idea with regard to thermal radiation, Einstein's ideas with regard to uh, 
photoelectric fake, uh, effect, and he began to explain why atoms are stable. The Bohr model of the atom essentially says that electrons move from orbital paths around the nucleus of an atom, and they emit photons, and they, so I have a photon absorption and emission issue, and we'll explain that in the weeks to come. And the color spectral patterns of heated hydrogen atoms was solved by Neil Bohr when he began to put quantum mechanic theory to the atomic structure. No other physical explanation would work, but quantum mechanics will work. Quantum mechanics works on thermal radiation. Quantum mechanics works on the photoelectric effect. Quantum mechanics proves that atomic structure is stable. What do we now know about quantum mechanics? Pretty good theory. And if it's true, the theological implications are astonishing. And that's why you're studying it. Neil Bohr solved, as I said, the spectral pattern of heated hydrogen atoms. When you superheat hydrogen, they start emitting photons. He figured out why the colors were the colors. And the consequences, as I said, of quantum theory was becoming apparent. And Bohr and Einstein began a great debate. And that's what we're going to do, by the way, next week. These two men began to argue. Einstein argued for determinism. In other words, that things could be determined. And Bohr said, no, man cannot know. Which one is biblically right? Max Bohr. Who do you think won the argument? Max Bohr. No, he did not. Einstein conceded this argument in 1930, fought the rest of his life because he wanted determinism to be correct. But Bohr had John Bell on his side, who died in the early 1970s, very young. How many of you graduated in high school before 1970? Well, not no, not me. Not me. No, it wasn't me. Okay, one of you. <laughs> Sharon, that's not true. Einstein definitely had his famous statement was, God does not play dice. And Bohr answered back to him, why are you, why are you speaking for God? You don't know what God does. Who are you to tell God something? Be humble. Absolutely right. And we'll get into that. I'll do my best. I'll try to bring my little hats and speak in the correct accents. But I won't do that well, but I'll try to be Niels Bohr and Albert Einstein, and you will understand this incredible debate between these titans of physics that just recently uh, passed away. I think uh, Planck died in 1947. Yes, he did. I remember that. Einstein. Do you remember when Einstein died? I remember it. I was definitely around. I was pretty young. Yeah, I think 55, 56. I, I remember, and people continued to talk about it, and I'll look that up for you because I do not know when Albert Einstein died, but it was relatively recent uh, when you consider these things. Okay, the determinism, determinism was being destroyed, and that, of course, made George Berkeley very happy, as you know, the great philosopher. Uh, George Berkeley had a premise on physical reality being perceived in order to exist, and he was being proved correct by quantum mechanics. And quantum physicists were echoing Berkeley. They still are. Quantum physicists say what Berkeley said. They say they're suggesting that electrons don't exist until we measure them. Or in other words, electrons don't exist until we perceive them or observe them. And we're getting into the observer effect again. And then along came next the uncertainty principle of Werner Heisenberg. Okay, so I'll put, I'll cut his name short so I don't get too, Heisenberg, he had the uncertainty principle, Werner did, and he, 1901 to 1976, are you beginning to see what's happening? It is only in your lifetimes that people have begun to figure out how things are made. How things are made. The things that are made. It is only in your lifetime that Romans 1.20, the clearly, the unseen being clearly seen, has happened in your lifetime. 
Every single one of you. After Heisenberg um, comes Schrodinger and his famous equation. I will make you uh, do his equation, by the way. Every physicist student has to do it. I was telling... Um, I was telling Jonas that the reason that I left teaching and went into building houses, uh, let me get Erwin Schrodinger on here very quickly, 1887 to 1961, you might remember Schrodinger's cat if you went to physics, uh, that's in the book uh, by, uh, by uh, Professor Andrews, he tells you to look it up on Google. Um, that's an interesting concept. But what what Schrodinger really did, he's famous for his equation. The reason I quit teaching school is because in order to keep my certification, uh, while everybody else was going to the Polynesian Cultural Center to watch hula dancing in December in Hawaii and getting their three credits, I had to go to physics class and calculus class. And so I thought, no, that's not why I signed up to be a teacher. I signed up to be a teacher for the reason all teachers sign up, and that's to get the summers off. That's exactly right. And that was not happening for me. I had these I had these classes like Christopher where they took up 40, 50 hours a week, and it drove me nuts. How's that going for you, by the way? Yeah, you hate it, I know. But, uh, after Schrodinger, but physicist students, what they do uh, is they spend most of their time a lot of their time. Can I get rid of phenomenology? Okay. And you all have to say it really fast. I'm kind of goofing around with it. But it'll impress your neighbors, trust me, when you can do that. After, and I got him out of order here because he's so important. Louis de Broglie. Okay, and do I have Lewis? Yeah, 1892 to 1987. Lewis de Broglie broke this all apart. Okay, music people, I know that it looks like the timer is right, but he started it during the uh, letter writing reading thingy. So I still have ten more minutes. I'm on page eight, and I'm going to make it. Louis de Broglie, in other words, you can't go by Pat's thing today. Uh, Louis de Broglie figured out something that I said to you last week and a couple weeks from, those, uh, from that. Einstein knew that light was in fact dualistic in the sense that it had a wave-particle dualism aspect. Louis de Broglie came out and said, all matter, all things have a wave-particle duality. In other words, all things are both particle and wave. And that would became a, uh, an unbelievable uh, uh, adjustment to Einstein's position with regard to the photoelectric effect. And Newton, even Newton and Einstein both figured out that, that light was a wave. And of course, I'm sorry, a particle as well as a wave. I don't know if Newton knew that, but Einstein for sure knew it was a wave particle both. And this duality exists and all matter. It's in us. We are thing-like and we are stuff-like. We are both wave and particle. That's humanity. And de Broglie figured that out using quantum theory. We have substance dualism. What de Broglie figured out is that there are two concepts to each human being. That we are particle, we are things, but we are also stuff or a wave or we are both soul and body. Mathematically proven by a physicist. Wave-particle duality explains the photoelectric effect. It explains the atomic structure. It explains all kinds of things. That is how God made everything. Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. I agree completely. We, the, if you wish to make this uh, analogy, you can say that our soul spirit are wave-like and our body is thing-like. And I think that would be perfectly appropriate 
and, and absolutely what I'm trying to say. But you have to know that particles and waves are very, very different. It's baseball and water. So imagine I have a baseball and I have a, and I have a tray full of water. Baseballs seem to have a specific determined location. They have a path of flight. They're predictable. And that's because of Planck's constant. I can absolutely predict the flight of a baseball because of Planck's Planck's constant. That's why max is so important to you. But I cannot predict the flight pattern of the microscopic world. And that's because Planck's constant is is um, ten to the th- or six point. Let me let me put it on the board. Six points. Oops. And we have to memorize these things. Uh. Okay, I'm going back and forth here. No, I think I'm right. 6.6262 times 10 to the negative 34th joule seconds. Okay, it's very small, Planck's constant is. But because it's very small, uh, it can tell me what a baseball is doing. But when a particle is also very small, uh, I end up with the uh, Heisenberg uncertainty principle. Now, I'm going to explain diffraction really fast. Okay, here we go. Diffraction is not simple, but it's key. A bunch of things are key here. Wave-particle duality is key. The implications of wave-particle duality and diffraction becomes the uncertainty principle. And this is now the one-slit experiment. Steve, where are you? Can't hide in the back on the one-slit experiment. Or called one-slit diffraction. Okay. Here's what's going on. I hit this with a wave. Okay. Waves are coming into this one slit. What happens? By the way, what is the wavelength? Waves hit this one slit. What happens? Diffraction happens. Diffraction happens. This is what happens, right? You've all done this as kids. Okay, you were never this crazy. That's what happens. Agreed? Diffraction. The spreading out. Louis de Broglie determined that all matter was not just particle and wave, but that all matter therefore had diffraction or inherent diffraction. How much diffraction occurs, how much spreading out occurs, it depends on the mathematical le- uh, uh, ratio, lambda over W. Okay? Where lambda is the wavelength, which is why I did that. And w is the slit. Dimension. Okay, so let me use. The, let me do this. Do you all feel like you're in eighth grade science again? Okay, you're not in eighth grade science, but I'm trying to make you feel good. <laughs> this is the slit dimension. So lambda over W, that ratio. And sound waves are three foot long. So here's a sound wave. Or one meter. That's a sound wave. That's the length of it, the wavelength of it. Light waves are a million times shorter than sound waves. So sound waves, because of this ratio and because of that slit, I can measure the slit, I can measure, I know what a sound wave is. I can play a piano. I absolutely measure sound because of it's very large, or, or water waves. But I can't measure very easily light waves because they're a million times smaller than that. But because of this ratio, we won't do it today, we'll do it next week, because of that ratio, if I know the slit is one inch and I know the, the, uh, the uh, sound wave is 36 inches, I can figure out the diffraction. Okay? But now if I have a million times smaller than that,
Now, I have hardly any, uh, this gives me a, a, a large diffraction. This gives me hardly any diffraction. Sorry, got to put the negative there. Those of you who are math students. Hardly any diffraction. So that explains why we can hear around corners. I can take Big Jack and he can go in the back and he can yell out my name through a slit that is six feet long and the waves will spread out and you will all hear it. Here comes Kurt. Kurt, stop. Okay, go around the corner where no one can see you. Yell, hi, people. Everybody hear Kurt? That's because, come on in, Kurt. That's because Kurt spoke at probably a three-foot sound wave pattern. Maybe a little less, maybe a little more. And the diffraction, we were able to hear it because it spread out. But we couldn't see Kurt. Why couldn't we see Kurt? Because light has hardly any diffraction. Does not spread out. Because of that ratio right there. That makes no sense to you today. But it will happen. We can hear around corners. We can't see around corners. Now, Werner Heisenberg recognized that de Broglie's wave-particle duality and diffraction caused uncertainty. See, what separates quantum theory is the concept of potentiality or probability. I'm going to put it in another way. Quantum mechanics proves to you that you have a soul. It also proves to you something else. It proves to you uncertainty. It proves to you that you have free will. I can prove free will with quantum mechanics and Scripture. I don't really need quantum mechanics. I can prove it with Scripture. I can prove it with Adam and Eve. But some of you want something more than Scripture. Bummer for you. But maybe not you, but maybe somebody else does. The Bible is the only one that lines up correctly as man is discovering the footprints of God. What separates quantum theory is the concept of potentiality and probability and therefore free will. Eventually, you'll come to understand how quantum theory connects to the question of God's omniscience and man's free will. And that's also the question of Hebrews 6, which is coming soon to a Cliffside Community Chapel near you. Anyway, I think I probably got to stop. You're dying on me, aren't you? Yes. Yes, a question to inspire me to continue. Yeah, go ahead, sir. Yes, how interesting that I would have recited Ecclesiastes 3.11 at the beginning of this. I'm, I, he's asking, knowing all of this, for those who are following on the Internet, and he went to Hebrews 11, um, uh, which is uh, very much like Romans uh, 2, or Romans 1.20. He's asking, does this strengthen your faith? What does it do for you? Um, and that's a very good question, and I have wrestled with it for a long time. One thing it does do is it strengthens your witness. And it... If, if it strengthens your faith, and that's why I said it's a shame that, that uh, Scripture alone is not, necess- or not sufficient, because Scripture alone should be sufficient. If it does strengthen your faith, that's terrific, and I'm thrilled. And I hope that happens. <sighs> but as to what, why do I do it? I do it because I want the church to be wise. This is God's way of doing things. We should know it. It should be ours. Whenever somebody comes into a church, they should expect to find wisdom. They should expect to find people that know how God did things and why He did them, that have wrestled with the 
with the physics of it and the philosophy of it and can explain it to anybody. The church should be the house of the wise, not the house of the me's. It should be those who glorify and are thankful and who understand and who are wise and who seek wisdom and not those who seek for themselves and are fleeced like, like lambs. That's why. I wish not for you to be dumb. Now, okay. I gotta stop here. We'll finish it next week. No, we won't, will we? That's just completely crazy. Let me say a few things. God's creation has an indeterminate position or momentum. We can know where things are, or we can know how fast they go, but we can't know both. And we can only know certain or anything to a certain level. We have a uncertainty level that cannot be uh cannot be violated. And that is important to know that we can't know things. See, the question becomes, uh, let me see if I can find it. You'll hear people that say, we don't know yet. That's a common argument. That's versus we can't know. The Bible says we can't know, Ecclesiastes 3.11. It says you will never know. You'll find people that say, we don't know yet. Well, that's, that's an argument. That's the fallacy of infinite regression. That's turtles all the way up. We'll get to that next week. And I know this is hard, and I know that it brings uh, difficult challenges. What I'm asking you to do is play classical piano. That's what I'm asking. And I think you can do it. I think everybody can do it. Next week, Niels Bohr and Albert Einstein, their argument, their great debate, how easy is that? You'll love it. You really will. Please come. Let's stand and be dismissed.